If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 475. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours. Truly, speaking of books, I've got my latest out, The Jeffersonian Tradition. It's a great book. Also, Southern Scribblings, which came out last year. These are over, well, Southern Scribblings is 60 essays in defense of the Southern tradition. The Jeffersonian Tradition is over 50 essays on a similar theme. But they're both great books. Pick them up now. Uh, you can get them both at Amazon. Uh, the others, uh, you can also get Southern Scribblings at Barnes & Noble and Books A Million. Uh, the Jeffersonian Tradition should be available there in the near future, but uh, right now it's available at Amazon. Also go to McClanahanAcademy.com to support the show. Click on that support tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. Get your Brian McClanahan Show gear at BrianMcClanahan.com by clicking on that shop tab. A lot of great stuff there. And also Learn True History, T-R-U-E, Learn True History. It's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Lots of great ways to support the show. Awesome way to support the show is to share it around on social media, rate it where you get your podcasts, and you can get it on all major podcast platforms. So let people know you're listening to the show. We need to add more people to this audience so that people are thinking locally and acting locally. But this week is going to be generally focused on history, which is what I do best. So we're going to talk about uh, several different topics. One that I think is something that has been uh, discussed quite a lot recently, particularly with the new federal holiday of Juneteenth or National Independence Day. And I've seen this quite a bit. And in fact, the next class, not part four of Originalist Papers, which if you're at McClanahan Academy, if you're on that email list right now, if you're on my email list, you know that class is out. Part three is out. And these are awesome classes. Part four is coming out in about three weeks or so. But the next class after that is going to be a discussion of 25 of the most important public speeches or documents in American history. And a lot of them are going to be on the left, and we're going to talk about that. But one of the ones that's getting a lot of publicity recently is Frederick Douglass's discussion of Independence Day. And this has jump-started a movement, I think, that uh, neoconservatives certainly are behind. The left is also behind. You have this discussion about the Constitution. What is the Constitution in relation to slavery? Is it a pro-slavery document, or is it an anti-slavery document? These are two important questions. Now, I'm going to summarize, give you a brief synopsis of both arguments. And then I'm going to talk about what it really is. 
But this is key to understanding our current situation in America. In fact, what you're seeing now on the left, the language they use is so funny to me. Because this is a war over language in many ways. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. It's a war over language and also uh, our collective history, if we even have such a thing. But later this week, I'm going to talk about uh, the battle over 1776 and what that actually means. This is, this is something important. We've got the 250th, 50th anniversary of that coming up in just a few years. We're already starting to prepare for it. But the battle over 1776 and what that means... But now the left, particularly people like Nicole Hannah-Jones, who I talked about last week, are using terms like memory laws. (laughs) Memory laws. You see, you can't remember the past the way that you want to remember the past. You have to remember the past the way they want you to remember the past. So this is all about memory. And you have people like David Blight who have made this the core of their argument, right? History is the remembered past. That's the very definition of history. So we're not talking about memory laws. We're talking about the understanding of history in America. What does that actually mean? What is American history? And how do we tell American history? And from whose perspective do we tell American history? Because you see, that's exactly what's at the core of everything that's going on right now. And I'll get into this a little more when we talk about the 1776 Project and the Battle of 1776, and the 1619 Project, because that's really what's at the core of all of this. It's whose memory do we make front and center in the American experience? Do we make the memory of one group of people, or another group of people, or another group of people? Whose memory? So this is is the core of the argument. When we get into a piece by our good friend Cameron Hilditch again this week. We're going to do that. And we've got a discussion of populism. So a lot of good stuff this week, but I want to get into the Constitution first and foremost. So let's talk about this. Is the Constitution a pro-slavery document, or is the Constitution an anti-slavery document? Or is it something else? If you listen to Nicole Hannah-Jones, and you listen to the current 1619 Project people, The Constitution is a pro-slavery document, or it was a pro-slavery document. Or if you listen to people that criticize the 13th Amendment, then it still is a pro-slavery document. Because you see, in their mind, the 13th Amendment allows for slavery if you are incarcerated. And of course, in their mind, incarceration is racism. This is an argument they've made quite often. In fact, the... I uh, just saw a piece today at the Hill, of all places, talking about the Biden administration's transition going back to Obama-era regulations with education and how uh, discipline is handed in, handled in schools. And it's the, um, it's the idea that you have people that are put in suspension or expulsion. That is a pathway to prison. So that's all based on race, right? I mean, this is all just race. So that could be an argument that or at least one of their arguments, that the Constitution still today is pro-slavery. But what about in 1788 when the Constitution was ratified? Was it a pro-slavery document then? This is a question that was actually asked uh, when we were doing a Q&A with uh, Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. If 
If you're a member of that website, Learn True History, that's my affiliate link. Again, if you're a member there, you get the Q&A, and I go on with Tom about once every three months or so, and we have discussions, and people get to ask questions, and that was one of the things we were talking about. The question was, is the Constitution a pro-slavery document? I can make a case either way based on the arguments, but I'm going to tell you what I think it really is at the end of this. So the idea of the Constitution is a pro-slavery document is based on several parts of the document. First and foremost, you have the three-fifths clause of the Constitution, which allows for slaves, it doesn't use that term, slaves to be counted as three-fifths of a person towards representation in Congress. And to those that say it's a pro-slavery document, they point right to that because they would say that here you are showing that slaves are part of this process, and that gave Southerners disproportionate political power in the United States. This is an abolitionist argument. In fact, what we've started doing now, what, what people like Nicole Hannah-Jones and others, even on the neoconservative right, are arguing from the abolitionist position. Again, we're seeing the world through the eyes of abolitionists in the United States. So they would say that that part of the Constitution shows that it's a pro-slavery document. Another part is the Fugitive Slave Clause, which allows for Southerners or anyone that had slaves to be able to reacquire slaves in non-slaveholding states like Pennsylvania or New York or Massachusetts. Those were the original states. Uh, now, Pennsylvania, I'm sorry, Massachusetts was the first to do away with slavery, followed by Pennsylvania, essentially. And um, then it cascaded from there. But usually these things were done gradually over time. So the question is, could you go reacquire a slave who ran away in a northern state? And according to the Constitution, there is the ability of Congress to institute a fugitive, a fugitive slave law, right? So this was a big debate in the antebellum period over the power of Congress to do so or the strength of said fugitive slave law. So according to that argument, because the Constitution contains the fugitive slave clause, which, again, doesn't use the term slave, then it is a pro-slavery document. And the last argument, of course, is the importation of such persons will not be prohibited by Congress until 1808, which gave a 20-year lease on the international slave trade. That would then make it a pro-slavery document, you see, because the international slave trade is left open. And so, therefore... It is a pro-slavery document because you could continue to import slaves into the United States for 20 years after the Constitution was ratified. So here are the three arguments in favor of the Constitution being a pro-slavery document. The three-fifths clause of the Constitution, the fugitive slave clause of the Constitution, and the, uh, the restriction on Congress prohibiting the international slave trade until 1808. Now again, in all three cases... The term slave is never used. The Constitution does not include slave in any way in the document. In fact, it uses the term persons, such persons or persons. So this actually lends to the other side of the argument in that the Constitution is an anti-slavery document. Now, just to make something clear on the Constitution as a pro-slavery document, probably the most important proponent of this view was William Lloyd Garrison, 
the abolitionist from Massachusetts who was the publisher of the newspaper The Liberator, which was prohibited from being circulated in South Carolina. But certainly Garrison was the most important proponent of the idea that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document. In fact, he advocated for secession because he wanted to get away from this pro-slavery Constitution. He wanted an explicitly anti-slavery Constitution. Now, again, at the end of this, I'm going to talk about where we go from here as I get to these arguments. So, Garrison, the abolitionist, pushes this agenda. Now, as I said, what we're talking about with the 1619 Project people, like Nicole Hannah-Jones, and even some on the neoconservative right and others, and they're saying that the Constitution's pro-slavery. Um, you get people on the left pushing this position more than anyone else, because usually the neoconservatives shade to the other side, because they don't they don't want to be called bad names, so they try to push the other side of the of the agenda. But certainly, uh, we have this argument: the Constitution is pro-slavery. So we have William Lloyd Garrison essentially dominating one side of the debate. In 2021, William Lloyd Garrison, the abolitionist, the radical abolitionist, dominating one side of the debate. Now, on the other side, we have the Constitution as an anti-slavery document. And here we have two important individuals. One would be Lysander Spooner. The other would be Frederick Douglass. So this is where the neoconservatives tend to push to the other side. And in fact, you get some of the libertarians pushing to the other side. The Constitution was an anti-slavery document. So you have a generally conservative position in America, when I say conservative, I put that in quotations, that the Constitution was anti-slavery. And essentially what this boils down to is if you look at Spooner's book, The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, and you look at what he says, it, it boils down to a natural law position. And he bases it on the Declaration of Independence. So this is where before Lincoln, and this is where you also get Lincoln thrown into this too, before Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, where he said that the United States is a proposition nation dedicated to the premise that all men are created equal. That proposition nation argument was made by Lysander Spooner, essentially before Lincoln did it, and Frederick Douglass, who initially was a Garrisonian, Frederick Douglass believed that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document until he read Spooner. And then he said, no, no, no. The Constitution is an anti-slavery document. Now, what's interesting about that is Spooner's argument. First of all, as I said, people that push this position say that slavery is not mentioned in the document, that there's no positive protection of slavery in the document. It's tolerated, but there's no positive protection for it. So therefore, it's an anti-slavery document. Also, natural law simply the, the idea of natural law is the enemy of slavery, and therefore because the United States essentially is based on natural law, and the states are based on natural law, even the state constitutions, which Spooner gets into, then therefore slavery is illegal. Now again, Douglas was a Garrisonian and eventually became interested in the idea that the Constitution was anti-slavery, by its mere structure, it's anti-slavery. And it's, again, based on this understanding of natural law and this idea that there is no positive protection. For the, and there isn't really any positive protection of slavery in the document. If you look at it, there's nothing that says that 
slavery is legal. There's nothing that says slavery is illegal. There's nothing there. And this is going to be my major argument in a second. So because there's nothing in the document that says slavery is legal, that it's protected anywhere, in fact, this idea that the United States government can legislate for Washington, D.C. or the common property of the United States, and yet there's nothing in there about slavery, would imply that the United States then can abolish slavery. In fact, Spooner would go as far to say that. The United States' central authority could abolish slavery because of its commitment to natural law, the Declaration, and everything else that goes into that idea of a proposition nation. In fact, Spooner gets into the word free and liberty and these type of things. So that would make, then, the argument that the United States, the founding of the United States, is anti-slavery. Now, there were people that firmly believed this in the founding period. There were people that firmly believed this moving forward. But again... The dominant position in the founding period was not that way either. But certainly, if we take this position, that the Constitution was anti-slavery, then we're taking the position of 19th century philosophers like Lysander Spooner, or 19th century abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, or 19th century politicos like Abraham Lincoln. That's the position we're taking. Essentially, we're either arguing a Garrisonian position or a Lincolnian position, one or the other. Or you could say Spooner or Frederick Douglass, or, but we'll say Lincoln because he's the bigger name, right? So we either go Garrisonian or we go Lincolnian. We're arguing over memory of America from two perspectives that weren't even the dominant positions in the United States at the time. Lysander Spooner was an outlier in Massachusetts. Frederick Douglass did have a, a, a pretty powerful voice uh, in the antebellum period, but only in certain pockets of America. Same thing with Garrison. The majority of Americans didn't look at it either way. So what we've done now in America, and this is what I said, that this is a war over memory and interpretation and vision and what that means. Basically, we're again, it's a war over history. But whose history? What we've done is taken a very small, tiny percentage of the American population. Abolitionists like Garrison were maybe, I mean, I, I would say if you said they're over 1%, I think that you're arguing, uh, you know, it, you're not making a solid argument. Abolitionists were about 1% of the American population in the 1830s, in the 1840s. With the publication of Uncle Tom's Cabin, you might have seen that grow to maybe 5% because that book was so popular. Americans were generally, I think, um, about maybe 40% anti-slavery. But when I say anti-slavery, they weren't necessarily anti-racist. In fact, I would, I would suggest that probably 90 to 95% of Americans were racists in America in 1860, even on the eve of the war. You might have had, I mean, I'm, I'm being generous again, 5% that believed and certainly the, the 10% equality of the races. I would say it's probably even less than that. So what we're doing is taking 1% of the population and their vision of the Constitution and saying this is a anti-slavery document or this is a pro-slavery document. 
And then, of course, you can point to Calhoun. And Well, I mean, Calhoun's saying it's a positive good, but Calhoun's position was essentially neutrality. And this is where I'm going to get into what the Constitution actually is. The Constitution, when it comes to slavery, is neutral. Now, it allowed for the United States to be a slave-holding republic, federal republic. Of course, that's part of it. But the document itself was neutral on the issue of slavery. In fact, that was made clear in the ratification period, and this is the argument that Southerners generally pushed in the period leading up to the war. It's neutral. You can't have positive legislation for it, and you really can't have negative legislation for it. When I say positive legislation, uh, the general government... I'll say this. Southerners did push a property element which would protect property in the territories, including slaves. So, in that way, you could say that they're pushing a pro-slavery position, right? This is protection of property, and they considered slaves to be property, so therefore, because the Constitution protects property, you could also argue that makes it a pro-slavery document. And certainly, some Southerners pushed that. But what they were really against was any type of positive legislation prohibiting property in the territories. So, because they said that was illegal. So what they're pushing more is a neutral position on the issue. Now, again, in 2021, to call people property, I mean, look, I'm making a historical argument here. I'm not I'm not pushing either side. What I'm saying, these are historical arguments. To say that people are property in 2021, I shouldn't even have to have a qualifier of this, that nobody believes in that anymore, and thank goodness, but to have people as property. But this is the argument that was made, essentially, at the time period. So, is the Constitution pro-slavery? I would say no. Is the Constitution anti-slavery? I would say no. I would say the Constitution is neutral on the topic of slavery. Now, I will go back to the ratification debates to talk about why I suggest that. If you go to Massachusetts and you look at the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention, they talked about slavery. In fact, they talked about being in a union of slaveholders as being a problem for them, at least some of the delegates to the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention. They didn't like being in a, in, a, in, a, in a union with slave states. Some of them didn't. The majority at the convention, though, the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention, said that the union was more important than an abolitionist position. The union was more important than eliminating slavery, because the Union would protect all of these states from invasion and give them the power to put down insurrections. I mean, it was a defensive argument that was made. The Union, because of commercial and defensive positions, was more important than worrying about this issue of slavery. And the arguments generally made were, well, look, Southerners cannot legislate for us here in Massachusetts. We can be as anti-slavery as we want, because the general government is neutral on the issue of slavery. Yes, there is a slave trade, which, of course, many people in New England were making big bucks on, particularly in places like Rhode Island. But when you look at, um, and of course, Rhode Island didn't even send a delegation to the Philadelphia Convention. But when you look at the Constitution itself, and their argument was, it's Massachusetts can do what we want. Massachusetts essentially, through uh, a court decision, abolished slavery in the state even though their initial constitution in 1781 um, and the initial proposals for a constitution contained uh, 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 it was a pro-slavery document. I mean, it, it allowed for that, right? 
And it wasn't voted down because it was pro-slavery, it was other reasons. But the initial Massachusetts Constitution that was presented during the American War for Independence was certainly, I, 17, I, 17, well, 1778 I think is the date, was certainly uh, pro-slavery. But again, the argument was, well, the Constitution is mute on this. There's nothing there that says it's pro-slavery. There's nothing there that says it's anti-slavery. We can do what we want with slavery in this particular state. And that was generally the argument that was made throughout New England. New England can do what it wants. New England can abolish slavery. New England can uh, prohibit the slave trade. New England can do anything. It's just the Congress is tied until 1808. Now, we look at George Mason of Virginia. Here we have a slave state. George Mason, who was one of the most ardent proponents of a Bill of Rights in the state of Virginia. Overall, I mean, you could say that George Mason... Uh, did more to further the discussion of a Bill of Rights than anyone else in the United States during the ratification period because he published his objections to the Constitution, which everyone talked about. And then, of course, his performance in the Virginia Ratifying Convention was legendary. But Mason also was at the Philadelphia Convention, and uh, he would rather cut off his right hand than sign it. Now, one of the major debates that is documented was this discussion of slavery in the Philadelphia Convention. It was one of the few times there was really much said about it. But Mason complained that the that the Constitution was going to leave open the worst part of slavery, which was the international slave trade, and yet curtail what he considered to be the most benign part of it, which was the domestic institution. Why did he say that? Because there was no positive protection of slavery in the Constitution. In fact, Mason essentially was voicing out loud what some other, other Southerners would say as well, that because there was no positive protection of the institution in the document, essentially it was leading a little more towards a Spooner argument when it comes to the Constitution being anti-slavery. Now, because there's no positive protection of slavery, then by default you could say it's anti-slavery. Again, though, it was neutral, and this is how it was argued over and over again in the States as it was going for rat through ratification. They talked about this. Well, yeah, there's no positive protection of slavery here, but there's no power in the Congress to interfere with the institution either. The Congress has no power because the power to interfere with slavery is not an expressly delegated power in Article I, Section 8. This was the argument against the Bill of Rights. If it doesn't say you can do it, you can't do it. This was James Wilson's argument when he stood out in the State House Yard speech in October of 1787. So because there's nothing in Article I, Section 8 enumerating a power to Congress to interfere with the institution of slavery, guess what? Congress has no power to interfere with the institution of slavery, even in the territories. You see, this was part of the other argument. Congress has expressed powers. These are the powers that you have. Yes, you can make needful rules or regulations in the territories, but, but it's also confined within Article I, Section 8 in those powers. And there's nothing in there that says anything about slavery, either pro-slavery or anti-slavery, neither. So Congress has to be neutral on the issue of slavery. There was some discussion about this three-fifths compromise. Uh, and that Southerners wanted slaves to be counted as a whole person towards representation, not three-fifths, but one whole person, because you get to count people in New England who aren't citizens, considered citizens, you know, children, 
Uh, you get to count. I mean, th- and it all came down to taxes. I mean, what Southerners are worried about more than anything else was New England having so much power they could tax the South essentially out of existence, whether it was through navigation laws, what George Mason called them, or direct taxes, which would be taxes on property, which would include slaves. And Northerners certainly wanted to tax slaves then this would give the South a balance and allow them to balance this out so they wouldn't be taxed out of existence. So George Mason's argument is interesting because he doesn't think there's any positive protection of slavery in the Constitution, which he considered the most, again, benign part of it. He was hard on the international slave trade, and rightfully so, because he called it the most brutal part of the entire process. And it was, right? I mean, this is, this is well-documented. Now, further south, when you get to North Carolina and South Carolina and Georgia, you see, it was South Carolina and Georgia that insisted in the Philadelphia Convention that the fugitive slave trade, I'm sorry, the fugitive, the international slave trade remained open. And they cut a deal with Connecticut, essentially, to do it. And New Englanders, of course, would still make a lot of money on the international slave trade. But when you get to North Carolina and James I. Riddell, who was one of the most ardent proponents of the, of the Constitution in North Carolina across the United States, wrote a series of essays called the Marcus Essays. If you take my originalist papers, we go through these. They're very important. But he also made a couple of really good speeches in the North Carolina Ratifying Convention, and he talked about slavery there. And he said, look, I'm completely against the international slave trade. I wish we'd have abolished it but we can still do it in North Carolina if we want to. We don't have to continue the process in North Carolina. We can close our ports to the international slave trade. That was his argument. He also thought the day should come in North Carolina when they abolish slavery outright. And if you look at Hugh Williamson, who was also a delegate to the Philadelphia Convention. Now, Williamson was uh, from the North, but settled in in North Carolina. Um, He certainly was also against slavery, but he was one of the ones that's saying, look, slaves are rational beings. He said this. We should count them as one whole person towards representation in Congress. He was against slavery, but he considered slaves to be people. As the Constitution actually says, these are three-fifths of persons. They're not property or chattel. They're calling them persons. So in that way, you could also say the Constitution is anti-slavery in that way. I mean, at least calling slaves persons is something that was higher than chattel, right? So, I mean, in that way... Perhaps you could say that the Constitution was anti-slavery. But because the states had tremendous leeway here, you could say that the Constitution, again, is essentially neutral on it. The states can do what they want. And in South Carolina, it was actually brought up during the South Carolina Ratifying Convention that the Constitution didn't have any positive protections of slavery. And... This was seen as a knock on the document. One of the things that irritates me the most about the discussion of South Carolina is that somehow it was popular in South Carolina because it protected slavery. If you actually go back and read the ratification discussion in South Carolina, some of the opponents to the document were those that were most concerned about the status of slavery and that it wouldn't protect slavery. So, (laughs) But that argument was pushed back because it did allow for uh, the international slave trade for 20 years. South Carolina could get their business in order to do what they want. Um, and there was no there was no uh, language that would allow for the general government to abolish slavery. I mean, so that was said, well, I mean, it's not an anti-slavery document, but it's not necessarily pro-slavery either. It's neutral. We can do what we want in the state of South Carolina without interference from Massachusetts or Connecticut or Pennsylvania or, you know, 
New Hampshire or Rhode Island or New York. We can do what we want here in South Carolina. And so when you look at this entire argument, we're we're missing where we should be talking about this, and that's from a founding position. These are the people that wrote the darn thing. These are the people that ratified it. What did they say about the document? Not what what not what what did William Lloyd Garrison say about the document, or Abraham Lincoln, or Frederick Douglass, or even Lysander Spooner? What did the founding generation say about the document? Was it pro-slavery or was it anti-slavery? And if you look at the ratification debates, it's generally neutral. This is what they said about the document. Even when you get into things like the gag rule, right? Later on, as you start seeing petitions being sent to the Congress to end slavery, and these things are all tabled. When you look at people like Philip Pendleton Barber, who was certainly who certainly believed, now this is a man that later served as Supreme Court Justice from Virginia, and he certainly believed the general government had the power to prohibit slavery in the territories, yet he was against even discussing the issue in Congress because he said it's not a power delegated to the central authority to interfere with the states in any way whatsoever. This is what the argument was. There's no power here. We don't have a power to talk about it. We don't have a power to legislate for it in the states. Once a state becomes a state, it can do whatever it wants. In other words, the Constitution is neutral on it when you're dealing with a union of states now in territory, which is a common property. Maybe that's a little different story. But when we're talking about states, which the United States, it's a union, a federal republic of states, then it's neutral in this particular way. There's no power whatsoever to do one or the other, unless you amend the Constitution, which is eventually what we got with the 13th Amendment. And there was some discussion before that with the first proposal of the 13th Amendment to make slavery permanent in the southern states. And it was opposed, not because they uh, th- there was some opposition to um, having a pro-slavery side of the but it was opposed by Southerners because this is already guaranteed. The Congress has no authority to prohibit slavery in the states because it's neutral on that. It's all about the territories. What are we going to do in the territories? If the Congress has a power over slavery in any way, a positive power, they're going to use it in the territories against slavery. But if but the point was always Southerners said there's no power. It's neutral. There's no power. You can't do anything out there. You can't you can't prohibit slavery and you can't really protect it, it's just tolerated. This is essentially an argument that Lysander Spooner made as well, that slavery is just tolerated. That doesn't make it legal, it doesn't make it illegal, it's just tolerated, because slaves were considered property. And so we didn't get into this natural law idea that he was pushing. That uh, Spooner is interesting too in this way, in that he's pushing a very loose construction of the Constitution, when generally he was a strict constructionist. Um, on many different ways, but many different issues. But here on slavery, he's much more of a loose construction. So I think in some ways, Spooner was being a little bit inconsistent. But when you look at these arguments, we need to stop arguing from the 1% of the population's position in America, whether it's pro-slavery or anti-slavery. It was neither. We need to start looking at what the majority of Americans considered the Constitution to be for the first 80 years of its history, which was neutral on the issue of slavery. The the Congress had no power to do anything about it. They couldn't prohibit it. They couldn't protect it. It was neutral. Now, they could pass a law that would allow people to acquire runaway slaves. So I think that, uh, but I mean, again, that's, um, 
is that a positive protection of slavery? I mean, you could say that it is because you've passed a law allowing people to go and acquire slaves. Uh, but they did prohibit the international slave trade after 1808. That did happen. So then you could say the Congress was operating from a generally anti-slavery position as well at that point. So I don't think the Constitution is either. I mean, the strongest argument in favor of the pro-slavery is the Fugitive Slave Clause, the Three-Fifths Clause, um, perhaps, but certainly the Fugitive Slave Clause is the strongest pro-slavery argument. The strongest anti-slavery argument would be that the power of Congress can uh, regulate territories, and therefore, because they can regulate territories, they have an implied power to regulate slavery in the territories. So they can have positive prohibition of the institution based on natural law. But I would say that overall, I mean, the Constitution is generally uh, powerless on the institution of slavery. It is generally neutral in the institution of slavery, and this is how we should be talking about the Constitution, not allowing each side to hijack it one way or the other. Because when you do that, and you start talking about memory studies and, every, and other things, this is where this creates major problems. We don't need to argue from a 1% of the population position either way. We need to look at it as overall, how did Americans generally consider conceive of the Constitution looking at the debates of Congress and other things, how do, they, how do they generally think about this? Well, most considered it neutral. The majority, North and South, considered it neutral. This is why they tabled the petitions against slavery, because there was no power there to do anything about it. And so simply petitioning Congress over it was a futile exercise that really wasn't going to get anything done. So they just thought they'd table all these things. So that is my position on, position on it. The Constitution is neutral on the issue of slavery and should be considered as such, except, I mean, now after the 13th Amendment, clearly it's an anti-slavery document because the 13th Amendment becomes part of the Constitution. Slavery is illegal. So therefore, now it is an anti-slavery document, um, without question. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time on the next one. See you then.